0: Hello, this is Eric LeMay, a host on New Books in Literature, a channel on the New Books Network. Today I interview Mary Capello about her new book, Lecture. Although I almost hesitate to call it a book, it's much more like all great lectures are, a performance, one full of erudition and insight, humor and humanity, profound diversions and wry musings one asking for your most acute attention and simultaneously inviting you to drift and dream. It's like a lecture in that it resists summing up and instead leaves you throwing up your hands and saying, I had to be there. Fortunately, because it is a book, you can be there. And fortunately for us, the incomparable Mary Capello is here right now. Mary Capella, welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Eric. It, it's just really a pleasure to be here and to have the chance to talk with you.
0: Well, this for me is is a rich and layered pleasure. Uh, it's a truffle of a pleasure because I had the benefit of hearing the lecture live on which this book about the lecture that is in itself a lecture um is based and i i can just say right off the bat that it was one of the most dazzling intellectual performances um that i've ever encountered and and your book is so very much a celebration of the lecture in all its possibilities um and so i just want to begin um by making a declaration of of how wonderful it was to see you embody um, those possibilities. Uh, so I come here as a fan, um, <laughs> full of gratitude for for your ability to bring the lecture to life. Um, can you tell us a little bit about you know the this lecture is in some ways a response to the lectures you love and yeah. and that impulse that drives the book.
1: Yeah. Well, um, first to say thank you for um, reminding me of that wonderful experience that really was the origin of this project altogether. And for you to um, describe the experience that you had of that lecture is is quite a gift to me. But I want to mention that maybe this tells us something about the lecture, in essence, which is to say, it wasn't just a matter of my arriving to the occasion of that podium in a in a really happy way, which I absolutely did, um, but that the success of that lecture had a lot to do with you and your colleagues and students and the people who were in the audience. So, so much of what becomes possible when we um, allow ourselves to think publicly. And, per- and perform this beautiful thing that is the lecture. So much depends, of course, on the locale in which we are incited and invited to do that and the other minds and hearts and lives and bodies that are in the room. Um, having said that, of course, then, this raises the question of what happens when the lecture translates to the page. And as you know, I very much stand behind the affiliation that inheres between the lecture and the essay and so it didn't take a whole lot of translating um, to move from stage to page. At the same time um, one of the things I address in the book is the way in which the page affords things that that performance does not and performance quite definitively Um, affords things that the page does not. I'm sort of actually more interested in the latter than the former. But as we're talking about a book that we hope people will want to buy, I don't want to downplay the beauty and power of actual books. The project, though, really takes its origin in a question that has always preoccupied me, I think, from the start of my career as a student and as a writer, and a thinker, and that has to do with um, not taking for granted the forms by which we convey knowledge and understanding, or for that matter, the forms by which we um, carry out um, or manifest publicly the art that we make. I'm thinking about readings, uh, the, the, the the tried and true reading, for example, and so. I'm as interested in the lecture as uh, a form that I, I very much believe, of course, could use some revisiting as I am in modes like the panel presentation. Um, re- I was recently thinking more about the nature of the seminar because I participated in something called a webinar. <laughs> and and to be honest um i couldn't see that there was any relationship between the thing that i was asked to do in a zoom webinar and and the beautiful entity that is a seminar but um maybe one one more thing to say about the origin of the book then um i i I came to a to a passage uh in in thinking about you know how, how i might respond to a question like this uh a passage that I wrote after I had already uh, edited the book, wrote the book, it went through editing, and then I added a paragraph to, to the book version of the lecture. And I come back to this paragraph because I, I think that um, I want to read it. It's very short because I want to suggest to readers that it really um, speaks to what I was after, uh, what why was I wanting to reanimate the lecture? It has to do with in an era that is opposed to thought um may in an era maybe in fact right now where the thought is even being obliterated. I was thinking that I wanted to uh create a a kind of organization, maybe even, that would be called the Friends of Thought (laughs) over and against Republicans and Democrats. (laughs) They're the Republicans, the Democrats, and the Friends of Thought. And the Republicans and the Democrats give speeches, and we Friends of Thought give lectures. If I just may read these very few sentences, uh, more and more I have come to understand that the lecture, it's on page 44, wants nothing so much as to touch us, to instruct us, in the power inherent in looking kindly on thought. If I could learn to look kindly on thought, I might come to look more kindly at, to hear with more compassion, the stuff that my own mind produces that I fail to understand. The lecture embraces it has learned to love ideas. At best, it listens and looks out for A voice intent on singing, no longer cowed before the bully pulpit of the mind. And needless to say, I had in mind not just the literal bullies who have enjoyed at least four years now uh, of a a great deal of airtime before political pulpits, but the internalized pulpit then of our own minds and um, the way in which I think the sort of loathsome, um, loathsome bullying before the pulpit that we've all been made to sort of listen to for quite a long time now is readily easily translated into a kind of self loathing. And, um, so openness to, to, to listening out to listen for, to a voice for a voice that, um, is in short supply.
0: Yes, yes. And I I think this would be a perfect moment to underscore this this investigation of the the lecture that you're doing in the sense of, of what you're imagining the lecture to be over and against what it is not. Um, So, you're imagining the lecture as a form of openness and possibility and discovery and surprise and recovery and rejuvenation. Um, And of course, there are sort of these associations of the lecture as boring, as information dump. I mean, no one will find in this book a recourse to a PowerPoint slide. Which has right. to be the dominant form of the lecture right now. Um, so could you could you tell us a little bit more about the inheritance of the lecture that you want to recover um over and against what we've seen? um and what yes. so many of us experienced is the lecture is this kind of colossal form that we must accommodate, um, sometimes made by little orange men,
1: Sure. Um, Well, the inheritance that I have in mind, of course, um, asks us to think about the relationship again, the affiliation between historically the essay and the lecture. And it's possible that that fell out of the equation in the course uh, by which education came to maybe colonize the lecture or institutionalize the lecture. But if you think of, of course, the one of the most famous examples, Ralph Waldo Emerson's lectures and the way that they've been described and what he was trying to do when he lectured. And the fact that his lectures, of course, in, in almost every case, his essays started as lectures that he delivered uh, in the circuit known as the Lyceum, the American Lyceum. Um, and what was it? He was talking about a form that he'd yet to see really uh, done well, and that was open to surprise. And he used the phrase, a panharmonicum of thought. Um, He suggested that the lecturer needn't know in advance what form it was going to take. And it required in fact that the lecturer be uh, as willing to succumb to its forces as an audience might you know to to in other words not think of what one was doing as an ascension to mastery and arriving at a point but um more so to embody for an audience the way a form of transport a form of transport i really what i love about what many of many things i love about being in the presence of a great lecturer is the chance to be taken out of myself as I know myself and to some other place I mean in a way it's what all great art does for us I think but so of course I have in mind lecturers like Emerson like Thoreau um, like Wolf, of course even though she did not like to lecture but I also Eric am not so much interested in and you know I could also draw attention to the, the various essays that I was um, had the pleasure as a student of, of attending. Um, I, I quote one of them at length in my book, uh, Martin Pops, whose lectures, you know, transcribed, really read like a combination of poetry and essaying. So I could refer to these these models that take us back uh, to the history of the form to earlier periods that take me back to, Uh, remembrances of of experiences that uh, enabled me to wake up and go to sleep at the same time but I really want to emphasize that I'm almost more interested in asking a readership to imagine with me the lecture that does not yet exist and has not yet been invented and that might be required by our time and might meet a need that we can articulate together. And so I'm not really compelled to give you lots of examples of what it is I am trying to describe. And this puts me in mind actually of a word I I wanted to, um, to bring into our conversation that's been preoccupying me lately. And it's the word speculate. I've been thinking about the fact that we are right now in a moment where I don't know a person who is not who has not been, at least since March, give, who has not had to give themselves over to speculation pretty much on a daily basis as we live in a pandemic. And by speculation, then, I mean we are all always trying to understand what might be next, what is in store for us, Will we find a vaccine? Will it be developed by this date or that date? Who will have access to it? Am I going to uh, contract the disease? How can I protect myself? Will we see each other in person ever again? I mean, we could go on and on and on, you know, with the kinds of speculation that the virus has required of us. Then we have, in addition to that, layered on top of this, we have the election and the week that we just endured as a nation state and that we continue now to try to comprehend and of course we just dealt with one of the hardest weeks in the history i think of this nation state in terms of um, anticipating and speculating about what the outcome might have been or might be I am happy. (laughs) I am elated in many ways with the outcome and in other ways, of course, um, we had hoped even for better outcomes in the House and in the Senate. But at the same time now, of course, we're dealing with um, the requirement that we be perpetually and continuously anxious because the president is refusing to concede the very clear win uh, of Joseph Biden. So I'm thinking about the fact that I, I have, for one, been beset by various sorts of speculation, but that, but that that word is actually a really important one for the kind of thinking, listening, and writing that I have in mind in my book. And that is that the word speculation, of course, at its best, has imagining in mind, the power of the imagination, and a willingness not to know what's next. So if you'll excuse this, um, <laughs> this lengthy exegesis that I'm like laying out here in response to your question, um, I'm trying to say that uh, I think I'm afraid that something of the speculative has been lost to us because um, the kind of speculating that we've been required to engage in is based on fear. And the kind of speculating that I think makes possible life and compassion and, um, you know, that is the essence of, of thought is a kind of speculating that can't can't know. It, it, it depends on not knowing what's next, not needing to know what's next and being open to, in fact, the beauty of, surprise. So I don't know if this, this strikes you in any, any particular way, but I'm trying to answer your question about, you know, what, what am I thinking of in terms of exemplification of, of the lecture I have in mind by saying, you know, yes, in some ways I can point to many, many different examples, including, you know, in the book, I talk about just the way that James Baldwin answers a question is a gorgeous lecture slash essay. And, uh, and we could go down the alley of a variety of different examples, but I'm really more interested in the lecture that we haven't yet invented and that could speak to the needs of our times. And I think that at the, at the very least, we need to reclaim the terms of speculation. Um, I was reading, I was reading and teaching a book by Heather Crystal called the crying book a few weeks ago. It's uh, a book length lyric essay on the nature of tears and on crying. And in it, she quotes Ann Carson. Um, I have to say, I didn't know this passage from Ann Carson when I wrote my book, a Lecture. And I want to share it with you because it speaks to this, um, to this question as well of the, the necessity of being unprepared, of being willing to be unprepared. My favorite part this is Ann Carson is connecting the ideas. The best connections are the ones that draw attention to their own frailty. So that at first you think, what a poor lecture this is. The ideas go go all over the place. And then later you think, but still, what a terrifically perilous activity it is. This activity of linking together all the threads of human sin that go into making what we call sense, what we call reasoning, an argument a conversation. How light, how loose, how unprepared and unpreparable is the web of connections between any thought and any thought. And so when you think of the abandon and almost a sense of radical freedom that is implied in in Carson's uh, sentence, I think that that's not really something we have much access to right now. And I think that We need to have access to that if um, I really think it has everything to do with social change and um, just really the ability to, to maintain one's sanity. We need our imaginations in order to remain sane. We don't need endless speculating about things that we cannot know.
0: It's a beautiful passage. Thank you for sharing it. I find myself... Thinking about actually, I'm just rotating over everything that you brought up, um, but the the question then, I suppose, that stands before me is is the way in which it seems to me like you're constantly kind of looking at these forms, the lecture, the speculation, the speech, um, mm. and making very. F- Find distinctions between what they can offer us at their best over and against where they they sort of shear off into the demagogue, into the authoritarian, into the mm-hmm. the life quashing. Um, mm-hmm. right? The, you know, the lecture yes. is, is this terrible experience. The lecture is this moment of transport. Um, speculation is this thing that's now being forced to, uh, on us in a state of trauma and anxiety and fear versus speculation as a celebration of the possibilities of the imagination and what can be wrought from them. Mm. Um, and it's something that I've, I've always admired about your thinking, your, your nuance, you're, you're just so nuanced and you're not willing to let go of the complexity of what you enter into. And and I think I see that as being so alive in your writing itself. It's writing that moves forward, listening to its own possibilities and letting them unfold, Um, which I think takes us back to, to what you said about Emerson with the idea that even the lecturer himself, herself, their self need not know what's going to happen because you give yourself over to the the grip or the inspiration or the, the unfolding. Um, and that's that moment of discovery when the web starts to come together.
1: Yes, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you, Eric. Thank you so much for that beautiful uh, description of what you experience in the reading uh, of, of this writing. Um, I'm, I'm struck by your, acknowledgement of my interest in making distinctions between things. Um, I think of James Baldwin again. I know one thing from another. He says, you know, I know that I'm I was born, I'm going to live and I'm going to die. And this is in this famous uh, meditation that you can find on YouTube where he was interviewed uh, on television and was in this one passage uh, of the interview, he is saying that he's explaining what he means when he wants to say, I am not the N-word. You know, I am not the N-word. And um, it's so moving, that moment where he quite starkly lays out this, this, this pronouncement that I know one thing from another. And I spent a lot of time in my teaching, actually, asking that my students cultivate what i call discernments and i ask them to to think a lot about and write about words that seem quite close to one another but that are not to be conflated with one another and it's not so much then that i'm ultimately interested in you know a definitive distinction being drawn between the speech and the lecture i'm a lot more interested as you point out, in the magnetic space that exists between these things that are unlike, but also like. And it really is in that space between the two that I think something beautiful um, can emerge. And a friend of mine, I suppose it will sound like self-aggrandizing to quote a friend saying something nice about my work, but... (laughs) Um, My friend and fellow writer, James Morrison, once said to me about my writing, and he reads everything that I write before anyone else does. He said, um, you are always working toward nuance. And he also coined for me a phrase that he thinks describes my work. Um, He called my, he's always called my work, lyric, lyric intellectual. And I guess I mentioned both of those things because, yes, I think that one of the things that Gets us into lots of problems um, is the insistence on uh, drawing stark contrasts between things in an oppositional way, as opposed to discovering what can become possible and right what really is always in front of us. I mean, the world is made up of synchronicities. That is the fact of the matter, (laughs) that this window I'm looking out of right now, you know, there are stripes made up of various forms of life that are coexisting side by side. My little consciousness can't possibly be adequate to them, but I think as writers, we have the responsibility to try to make some of those adjacencies visible or audible. And I think that unfortunately, where the current demagoguery of our nation state is concerned, it's a bit of a truism, but perhaps it's true that what people found appealing in in Donald Trump's pronouncements was precisely that they are pronouncements and precisely that they they lack nuance altogether. They're very very um, they're very very cut and dry, and and I guess that makes some people feel feel protected and cared for. Um, it makes them feel less desperate. But you know I wrote a book on awkwardness some years ago, and it was driven by the idea that we could afford. <laughs> Can't we afford to dwell more in uncertainty? And isn't that what we all share, in fact, Um, the fundamental vulnerability of being human, the fundamental precarity? I think that our current president refuses to acknowledge his own mortality, actually. And I think that, that whenever you have someone who propounds a kind of omnipotence relative to themselves... It, it's a blatant, um, it's a blatant denial of the fact of the matter that he, like I and you, is mortal, and he must therefore acknowledge not the not the um, <laughs> infinitude of his power, but quite the obverse, the extent and limit of his power as a human so I guess I'm trying to say you know I see myself as a writer as someone who in the little life that I'm given I devote myself to the glorious nature of nuance yes and I can't really ever adequate it in my work but I try and um it's it's the beautiful challenge of being alive that is the beautiful beautiful challenge of being on the pla- on the planet
0: yeah I, when i'm thinking of your work i'm thinking of it as as you refuse to to sever or, or cauterize off something in order to make it fit or work and so so then you get like beautiful awkwardnesses and you get the charge between categories you get instead of ossification live energy um and 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 that feels so, so precious, right? Like I respond to that as a reader, um, that that possibility, that charge. And uh, you know, one of the pleasures of preparing for this interview was that I got to hear another interview with you in which you talked about being in conversation with your mother as as a possible kind of deep structure for for why it is that your sensibility, is open to this. Um, I I wondered if you'd share a little bit of that with our listeners.
1: Sure, sure. And I'm so glad that you referenced that because what I didn't think to mention when you asked me about how I might exemplify the the lecture that I have in mind, is that uh, absolutely, I would encourage our fellow listeners, readers, thinkers, writers, people, to look for these forms that we're interested in, in places where you don't imagine them to be occurring. And that's really the most exciting place to find them. Not even where we expect to find them in the university, you know, in the auditorium, um, but in the, the daily. And my mom, any conversation with her is an essay (laughs) slash poem slash lecture in the best sense of that word. My mom has a capacity to move among and around and through lots of different discourses in any one conversation. And so she takes the pulse of the day in some way. She usually is reminded, no matter what we're talking about, of a snippet of poetry or of a song or of a film. And she gives herself over to humor. And I have tried, sometimes I actually take notes when I have conversations with my mother because because I think I am in the presence of something that should be recorded. And I don't know that I could write an essay that would move so deftly and beautifully from A to Q to D to F in the way that she just did. And, uh, and so, yes, um, my mom is a great model for me in that. And uh, I was just, uh, before talking to you, revisiting an essay I've been trying to write since July about the lecture in the age of Zoom. And the first half of which is a bit of a screed, against online learning. And I don't consider screeds to be essays. So, um, you know, I'm not happy with the first uh, part of my essay. But I discovered that as I kept writing, what the essay really wanted to be was a meditation on my mom's conversations and my 10-year-old nephew's uh, art making during this time in the pandemic of uh, of real isolation and and depression for him as he tries to learn via zoom and my 5-year-old niece's uh creation of collages and what the children in my family and also the elders in my family are teaching me about vital ways that we have available to us for making meaning and making sense and and in that you know, with an emphasis on the word meaning, making, not meaning, but making. Um, so, yeah, I hope that answers your question, that what I would hope for the lecture to become is, is imminent in the, the uh, acts of the imagination that I, I'm happy to be present to, um, from my, that I see in my family, you know, right now. And um, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. I think that I think that one way to to maybe describe the phenomenon we're talking about is is not calling anything out prematurely before it might speak and reveal what it needs to say, and mm. you know, one of the you know. Anybody who's been listening now for 32 minutes um, will have a very clear sense that you are an extremely intellectual and erudite person. Um, and and that I celebrate in your work. What I celebrate is that goes hand in hand with a tremendous sense of humanity and humaneness, um, which those two pieces don't always go together. If you're an intellectual lyricist, um, you're also... Uh, an intellectual compassionist, or something like that, um, and and this is all leading me to to thinking about you know one who would encounter this work would encounter um, Audrey Lord on the lecture and Virginia Woolf on the lecture and Foucault on mm-hmm. the lecture and the way you're pulling these pieces together, um, but there's this moment where you talk about what equally or perhaps even more so informs. Your sensibility, and thus the possibility for this kind of work, and the possibility for this kind of thinking, and you call it the uncommon archive. Um, oh yes, it's on page one hundred and sixteen. It's sort of something like the the deep structure of what you're you're drawing on in order to create this work. I would love it if you would read that that passage. It's just oh, sure so. You, on page one hundred and sixteen, you talk about the uncommon archive, and then you begin to you do a, a catalog, a list of of these moments that are kind of deep uh, in your consciousness and body that that shape the work um, that we've been reading all along.
1: Oh, uh, thank you, Eric. I'd be most happy to read that passage, certainly.
0: Uh, okay. Thank you. Sure.
1: Okay. Uh, what. Virginia Woolf did not do, and what I wish she could talk to us about from the great beyond, was to create a form of lecturing that could adequate the radical inventiveness of her fiction. There is so much that lies unrevealed in the lecture in general, and in this lecture in particular. Though a reader might assume that my sources are in evidence as citations, my thinking, just like yours, actually derives, from a mostly invisible, uncommon archive, my pet phrase, or what Bart would call a plurality of desires and reservoir of perversions that lay at the heart of any creation and must be allowed free play. As textured as our notes and untranslatable, they include, for me, my mother's agoraphobia and the time bomb that was my father. The boom of my father's voice that knocked out each rib that held a breath in place and sometimes his hand. The scent of a gardener's gardenias in my mother's hair. The gardener was my father. The sound that broke the dinner plates in the same moment it killed the little girl next door when a bullet aimed at her father struck her down instead. The daily search for the antidote My first encounter with the word crepuscular. My sense there was something to be learned of crenellations. Getting lost in a department store when I was seven and in a snowbank when I was eight. The particular gracefulness of a flying squirrel who glided across branches in a future sleep. The tendency to curve, coil, spring and screw in spite of all the world's attempts to straighten, stiffen, and stuff.
0: That's wonderful. (laughs) It's just wonderful.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, uh, all this question of when people come to books and they want to know... what made you write this book? Yes. <laughs> Where did this come from? Um, and, of course, the academic approach, as we know, is to have our citations lined up in a row and our footnotes and uh, works works cited as our sources. And as you know, as the magnificent essayist that you are, um, oh, our sources are multifold and... and Often inarticulable and and uh, i I very much think that it's important to identify our unspoken sources to the extent that we can, even as we uh, allow them to do their work without our needing to know um, what exactly they are. So, yes, thank you for for asking me to draw attention to that passage in particular, because, you know, I think that list offers a set of answers that uh, one could not anticipate. I I can talk at length about in what sense each of those uh, things in the list called for this book. Obviously, the, the link between them is not obvious, but I suppose the one that I became most aware of once I, I wrote, uh, translated the Lecture that I delivered at Ohio University into this book uh, is the, um, the the one having to do with violence and realizing that because I grew up in a violent neighborhood and I went to a Catholic school where corporal punishment was the order of the day and because I grew up in a violent household actually as well I I think that my interest I know that my interest in the lecture has also everything to do with wanting to unwed, as you put it, you know, authoritarianism from pedagogy. And with that, to bring back into what we think of as the classroom, something like attention and nurture and tenderness and and love. And um, I was revisiting before talking to you this wildly interesting little book called A Lecture on Lectures, which I cite in in my book by Sir Arthur Quiller Couch or otherwise known as Q (laughs) and the Hogarth Press published, uh, you know, Virginia Woolf and Leonard Woolf's press published this little book. I found it on, I found it, you know, I was able to get a copy of it. No, no library seemed to carry it anymore, but I actually have a first edition in my hands. And I want to share with you a sentence from his lecture on lectures because it speaks to this, uh, the necessity of love, I think, um, Q, he wrote, the truth I mean is this, that when a number of persons are met for a purpose in itself unselfish, and the love of learning is that, there often prevails over the assembly, a strange congregational spirit, recognizably good by any individual member, yet not his own, yet nothing he consciously brought, but unlocking rather some sense that people have more good in common than they pretend to if only some other person have the gift or art to unlock it. And I, I changed man and men to people in his quotation just now. <laughs> um, but I guess two, two, two aspects of, of what he says here that I just love. The idea that when we come together in the name of learning, that we are coming together, we are met for a purpose in itself unselfish, that the, the love of learning is essentially an unselfish um, premise for 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 coming together. I love that. And then and then this idea that when we have been in the presence of a great lecturer in this unselfish context, something gets unlocked in us. You know? and, and that somebody does have the gift to unlock that.
0: I... I find myself in a position choosing between what I think is, is selfishness and uh, something greater. And, and so what I'm going to do is instead of pushing on to one of these many questions that I still have before me is that I'm going to thank you for that beautiful answer. And I'm going to thank you for being one of those people that makes that love of learning and that possibility for the shared love through it um, to manifest and to occur. And to say, Mary Capello, I couldn't be more grateful for the fact that you've shared your time with us today.
1: Thank you, Eric. Thank you very much.
0: My name is Eric LeMay, and you've been listening to an interview with Mary Capello, author of Lecture, here on the New Books Network.